Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Pablo Samuel Castro. Pablo is a staff research software developer with Google Brain, and we are here for our annual AI Rewind 2020 session with a focus on reinforcement learning. Pablo, welcome back to the Twomo AI Podcast. Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. It's my pleasure, and I'm looking forward to this session. You have done a lot of homework and pulled together a lot of papers for us to talk through. For those who have not heard one of our AI Rewind shows before, uh, this is maybe our third year doing them, and the idea is to check in with folks who have been on the show generally uh, previously and kind of take their temperatures in terms of what they think are the big developments in their field of research. And for Pablo, that is reinforcement learning. So maybe, Pablo, we can start with you know, having you kind of share kind of broad brush reflections on RL in 2020. 2020 itself was a, a crazy year in so many ways. Did, did that translate to RL? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a pretty wild year um, in so many respects. I think they're mostly negative, unfortunately, but uh, it's still heartening to see that despite all these challenges, like there's exciting things happening in the RL world and just in the academic community and 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 beyond. There are some, some really great things that came out of this year. Um, I think the realization that Things can happen even if you're not physically in the same space. I think opened up a lot of doors for new technologies, for what it means to hold a conference, um, what it means to hold an inclusive conference. Obviously, I, I still prefer physical conferences, but I think the fact that we were forced to have these virtual conferences meant a lot more people could participate from all time zones and all over the world without restrictions of visas or budget or anything like that. So I think that was quite a positive thing. And also for, for me personally, it was, I, I live in a different city from where my office is. So being forced to work completely from home made me realize that I can still be quite productive, even if, if I'm completely remote. I mean, I guess other people realize this as well. I know it wasn't the same for everyone, but uh, I already had a bit of momentum working from home. So it was, it was pretty good. In terms of RL, I, mean, I think there were a lot of really exciting developments uh, this year. I mean, the field continues to push forward. One of the things, or two things, actually, that that I'm, I kind of feel in the air, and I'm very excited about um, happening is uh, one is we're starting to see reinforcement learning being used in the real world beyond gaming situations. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the papers that I published with uh, my collaborators this year that we can talk about later. But that is is something that I think is is uh, indicative, I think, of of what we'll we'll start to see more and more that are going beyond like gaming benchmarks or, or benchmarks that are that are restricted to research labs and really being used, uh, put to good use in the real world. The other is, I mean, this has already been happening for a while, but I, I feel maybe it's perhaps just my own interest is growing more, but I feel like there's more interest and emphasis in really trying to understand what is happening when you combine deep networks with reinforcement learning. I think a lot of us that, that grew up with reinforcement learning before deep networks, we sort of learned to love all the theory that came with it up to linear function approximation. 
And then sort of, and it's still kind of the case that most of the theory that, that is produced, it stops at linear function approximation. And then beyond that, you kind of base yourself on the theory and you have sort of best practices and things like that. But there's still a lot we don't know. And there's a lot of brittleness in terms of how you combine things and a lot of unknowns. And I think we're starting to see more and more papers can bring a magnifying glass to those design details. Um, and I th this is really exciting because, again, it goes well with this idea of, of using RL in the real world. I mean, before deploying things in the real world that can have like, real life effects, you really want to be sure of, of, of what's happening. And I think doing these types of empirical and, and scientific analyses will help us get a better grasp on that. Mm -hmm. How much of that is very deep RL specific? I know the the same impetus to better understand deep learning in general has been, you know, ongoing for mm -hmm. the past few years. Are the breakthroughs that you're thinking about or the progress that you're that you're referencing is deep RL specific? Yeah, so I think there has been a, a quite a bit of work to to understand deep networks uh, in the supervised or unsupervised setting. And a lot of it does translate to reinforcement learning, but a lot of it doesn't. And the reason for this is that in most cases, when you're dealing with something like supervised learning, you have a fixed data set, right? And so, so you're sampling from this fixed data set or from a distribution that's known beforehand. With reinforcement learning, it's, it's quite different because you're typically, in, in traditional reinforcement learning, you're interacting with an environment and it's through your interactions that you accumulate experience, and that experience is what you use to, to learn and improve your, your behavior. But how you collect that experience is a direct consequence of your behavior policy, and how you improve that behavior policy is obviously affected by your algorithm, but also affected by how you collected that data. And so there is some work in, in, in what's called offline or batch RL, where you don't get to interact with your environment, but you're handed a, a chunk of data and you have to do your best with that. I think that that's quite interesting work and a quite interesting field. There's been a lot of work in that space as well in this in this year. And I, the reason I'm, I like it is because it helps disentangle this this idea of the, the shifting distribution of data and how um, if you have a fixed distribution of data, then you can focus on some of the other components of reinforcement learning. The other aspect that makes reinforcement learning quite challenging is this issue. I mean, it's part of the deadly triad that, that's well known, this issue of the bootstrapping, where you're basically building estimates using your previous estimates. So if your data distribution kind of goes wrong along the way at some point, that could potentially lead you down a wrong path that, that's hard to recover from. And so we have theory for, for how to deal with these things. But again, these theories typically stop at the linear function approximator setting. So I think this is what makes this idea of understanding deep networks quite challenging in the reinforcement learning case, because we have the, it's a dynamical system and the training data that we have, you can almost view it as a, as a completely dynamical system. And so that makes it really, really challenging to get a, a firm grasp on, in particular, theoretically, if you want to get a theoretical grasp on these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have pulled together a ton of papers for us to talk about and- mm -hmm. They fall into several categories that you think are, you know, areas that we've made uh, some interesting progress in this year or that have been a focus for the community this year. You know, let's maybe start by talking about the different categories uh, that you're sure. talking about, and then we can dig a little bit deeper. Sure. So these are definitely not exhaustive. So there's many <laughs> other areas of research that happened in 2020 that is very exciting. Um, so this is by no means, if it, something isn't here, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen or that it's not exciting. It's more that it's uh, 
It's not an area I'm particularly active in, so I'm not doing a ton of research in that space and and that I'm not perhaps don't have as much background knowledge as as some of the the areas that I'll be talking about here. I mean, as you've probably inferred, RL has grown a ton uh, in the past years. The the Deep RL workshop is basically a a conference in itself. It's, It's huge. And so it's really hard. It's becoming hard to have a good grasp on what's happening across the whole field. And so inevitably, I'm going to be omitting things. And, and rather than trying to do a shallow survey of, of what's happening, I wanted to kind of focus on, on certain areas that are the areas that I'm, I'm most excited about. So yeah, I grouped them into three or four categories. So the first one I called uh, representations or metrics, but you can also think of generalization falling in this space. And here, this is again, in particular with the case of deep RL. What we're trying to do, part of the the draw of deep networks is that they're able to generalize well, right? So in the pre-linear function approximator, when you're dealing with a tabular setting, um, so that has some advantages, but it doesn't really generalize that well because every state has its own prediction and its own approximation. And so that doesn't naturally carry over to to other states. With deep networks, one of the the advantages of it is that when we update for some estimate for a particular state, because the parameters are shared in this network, we end up updating for nearby states. And so the idea, that's where the idea of representations comes in, that you want to learn a good representation such that all the states affected by an update, by whatever learning process you're doing, because otherwise you end up moving things that, that you don't want and it, it becomes difficult, more difficult to do, to, to learn in that setting. And so there's, I think there's a lot of types of papers that are related in the space. So there's uh, papers that cleanly fall into representation learning and even call it that way in their titles. There are other papers that are dealing more with generalization, but I think they kind of fall into the same bucket in the sense that um, you're leveraging past experience for unseen experience. And I threw in metrics in there because this is an active area of research for me. This is perhaps the smallest of the of the three that, that I mentioned in this category, but the reason I put it in here is, well, one, I, 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 it's a very active area of research for me, but also I find there's a lot of theoretical uh, basis for what it means to have a good representation when you're talking about state metrics or state action metrics. And there has been some work for the past 20 years on, on this area, where if you can have states that have a distance between them that goes beyond like physical proximity, it's more like a behavioral distance then having these grouped together in your representation space will likely lead to better representations. So that's one, one, one grouping. The second grouping that I came up with is what I was just mentioning before. So understanding or evaluating deep reinforcement learning in a deeper or more principled way to get greater understanding for what's happening and really sort of poking holes at all the unquestioned assumptions that we often carry over from the just kind of get grandfathered in as you build on top of previous algorithms. So that's that's another category. Then I also have reinforcement learning in the real world, which is something I, I mentioned a little while ago that we're starting to see a, a bit more of this in 2020. And then finally, I have another category. And these are just a couple of papers that I found neat uh, and particularly exciting for um, different reasons. We can talk about them later. All right, cool. Well, let's dig into the generalization topic. In terms of representations, one of the topics that was on my radar quite a bit end of last year and throughout this year has been this whole idea of model-based reinforcement learning. Is that a big part of that category that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, the, 
there's a big chunk of papers and and this has been there's been quite a number of papers in this year that are dealing with these latent models or world models mm-hmm. where you essentially learn a latent representation that is uh or they try to learn it in a way that it's reflective of the real environment and so the advantage of that is that you basically end up learning a model of of the world and so mm-hmm. if you have a model of the world then you can learn on that model without having to interact with the environment itself and so how you learn that model of the world is obviously uh, where the challenge and and where where the the research lies. And so a lot of the work in that space has focused mostly on pixel-based environments um, where where you have um, images. And uh, I mean, that's understandable. A lot of our benchmarks are built on this. So Atari, video games, yeah, Yeah, exactly. DM Lab and those things like that. But also I think uh, a lot of the work, for instance, a lot of these these works use things like VAEs for learning these latent representations and and VAEs are traditionally used on images. Um, And so there's the way you train them is uh, quite well understood with in the in the image domain. And I think that that's another one of I mean, there's there's work already in in the non-RL deep network setting, but VAEs are not easy to train. So you read about them, you understand them. And then when you start training them, there's a lot of tricks that uh, you kind of need to know or some you have need to have somebody tell you so that they can train properly. I think I've seen at least one long Twitter thread on VAE training tricks this year. Yeah. So there was one paper that came out. Um, was it ICML? I can't remember. It was, a, it was a, like a month ago or something. And uh-huh. I remember looking through it and the, there were just all these little tricks that you had to do. And I... I Coincidentally, I, at that time, I was working on a VAE for a particular project I'm, I'm working on and sort of rediscovering these tricks. So, you know, you code up your VAE and you throw your data at it and it's like, OK, it doesn't work. Now it doesn't work. <laughs> OK, well, let's normalize the data. OK, sure. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense after you think about it, but it's not something that, you know, comes it doesn't come, come with the instructions <laughs> right, right. when you bought your VAE. Um, <laughs> And and so, but that obviously has a huge effect. And so, normalizing the data has a has a big effect. And then there's a whole collection of, of tricks that people use mm-hmm. um, to get these things to train properly. So, to come back to the original point of of pixel pixel based uh, domains, I think probably that has something to do with it. Like if you're trying to train these autoencoders, where there's quite a bit of knowledge um, and experience in training them for image domains, then it makes sense that you want to start with those types of domains, which are also the ones kind of most welcomed by the research community or that are very welcomed by the research community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of work. Let, let me highlight a couple of papers. So I collected a bunch, but uh, I didn't uh, necessarily put them in, in great order. And these, again, are not in any particular order. There, I took these papers from the proceedings of uh, ICML, NURPS, and iClear from this year. I did that because I wanted to sort of focus on peer-reviewed papers. There's, um, If I go through archive, I, the list would have been a thousand times longer. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting papers there, but just to sort of set some rules, I decided to focus on these. So... The first paper was an iClear paper. It's called Contrastive Learning of Structured World Models by Thomas Kipf, Elise van der Poel, and Max Welling. And so here, they're basically combining this idea of, of learning these world models, but also with some structural inductive biases. So in particular, the biases that uh, that they're looking at is assuming there's, there's a collection of objects in your environment that interact in some particular way. And so they're using graph neural networks to sort of model, learn the the relationships between these objects. 
And so if you say there's five objects in, in my, my domain, mm-hmm. um, and their, their architecture kind of learns to figure out how to map um, the different pixels into different object categories, and then how to sort of connect them via this graph neural network. And I thought that was quite interesting. I think a lot of people often look down on papers that, that are injecting these types of inductive biases because it's like, well, it's not general enough. Sure, but I mean, there will like, again, coming back to the, the question of the real world scenarios, when you want to real something that works in the real world, you're going to have to inject domain expertise into it. Mm-hmm. Like a completely general purpose algorithm is likely not going to perform very well. And so understanding how these different um, inductive biases work is, is, I think, quite important. One thing that this paper um, highlights that I think is true for a lot, if not most of these world model type papers, is that they assume deterministic transitions. And so dealing with, with stochastic transitions is obviously much more complex. And it's a, a simplifying assumption that I've taken myself um, in one of the papers that, that I'll discuss later. But it's a reasonably strong assumption still, especially if you're trying to say something theoretically about these these methods. What's the role of the transitions in this paper? The setup, as I understood it from your, your brief introduction, was I'm imagining a static scene with some fixed number of objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does the transitions come into play? It's in the graph neural network. So they, that, that graph neural network kind of encodes the transition model. Mm-hmm. So... So I guess it's important for them to have deterministic transitions because if you have an action that says, for instance, push this object left or something like that, then it will go left. It's not like it might slip and stay where, where it is. And yeah. so I think, I'm not sure if, if they actually tried it with stochastic transitions or not, but uh, some a lot of these papers, even though they, they end up uh, demonstrating their, their efficacy with experiments, a lot of them do have like some theoretical foundation to them and often... Um, this is the case with my AAA paper that I'll mention later, but uh, often the theoretical results require the, the determinism assum- assumption. Otherwise, mm-hmm. things kind of can break down. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's quite the same, but you were just tweeting about uh, deterministic rewards versus random rewards, weren't you? Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's related to my AAA paper. It's still, I'm still working on that on that stuff, and I can talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Um, once we go get into the metrics part of side of things, so another another uh, paper that that I that I quite enjoyed is is curl. This was I think an ICML paper, and so curl stands for contrastive unsupervised representations for reinforcement learning. Uh, Michael Askin, Arvind Srinivas, and Peter Abiel. So a lot of these works use what's called a contrastive loss. Mm-hmm. So a contrastive loss is is uh, you can think of it as you have some sort of measure of whether things should be close or far. And if they're close, then um, so you have often you have positive and negative examples. So positive examples, you want them to be close. Negative examples, you want them to be far away. And so how you figure out what's positive and what's negative, it varies from paper to paper. So some papers will do things like they'll apply some type of data augmentation to your pixel. And so you want to, the images that have been augmented, you want them to be kind of close to the original so that it's robust to these types of perturbations. Other papers will, will, for instance, say any states that are within like three steps or something of the original state, we want them to be close together because they're sort of nearby in this dynamics model. And other papers will use things like metrics, like this is the work that I'm using. So you have some type of behavioral metric that tells you these states are close, these states are far. So you can use them using thresholding or just use the metric directly. 
But essentially what you're trying to do is with these contrastive losses is push together um, state representations that are nearby and push apart state representations that are not. Mm -hmm. So again, with these contrastive losses, there's also tricks that, you know, you get to learn as you as you play with them. Um, so for instance, cosine distance is a, is a very popular distance function to use for these losses. If you use something like L2 distance, it tends to not work quite as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> So anyway, curl is one of these papers that uses uh, contrastive losses. And so they, they have this architecture that's, I guess it's sort of inspired by, by LSTMs or this type of thing where you have queries and keys. And so uh, you do some data augmentation based on your observations. And so some of these become your query observations, which you feed through, through an encoder. And then you have key observations that get fed through another encoder. And so the they use them in this in this kind of funky way where the... The query encoder is that's all that's used for for the control. So basically, for choosing actions for your RL agent, and then the query and the key encoded representations are then combined into this contrastive loss. And so you you have these two loss functions. One is the the typical RL loss, and then the other is the contrastive loss. Mm-hmm. And it seems to produce uh, some pretty good results. Um, so the general idea there is that the contrastive loss provides an additional constraint that helps with generalization in some way exactly exactly so this is uh com- coming back to what i mentioned uh, initially where you want to have states that map to a representation that's right. nearby if those states sort of share some type of property or quality right so typically what we're interested in is value functions because that's or, or q values because that's how we're in value-based methods that's how we're picking actions right so if, if you pick you want to make sure that when you map states together that they'll have the same optimal action. Right. Um, and, and this will come Q, back later. Sorry? Those Q values are, you can think of those as more, you know, domain or problem specific and less about the representation and the contrastive loss is a way to also optimize the representation. Is that? Well, it depends. It depends. So here, again, it, it varies on, on what you want to do. So if you want to do single shot learning, where you ha- want an agent that will get thrown into a task and it'll learn quickly there, yeah. Um, then really what you care about is Q, how Q evolves. And you want to make sure that that states that are nearby together for your partic- your current instance of Q, that they sort of share the ordering at least of, of Q so that you don't make mistakes when choosing actions. Uh, but if you're really interested in generalization and you want something that's more like reward agnostic, say, or or something that will be robust to sampling different transition dynamics or different reward dynamics from a, an underlying distribution, then you definitely need something more than Q. And that's where, where it's important to figure out like what is going to be this notion of proximity that you use in your contrastive loss. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where metrics, I find, can be really useful. And, and um, I find them really exciting because these metrics are, are built up theoretically and they do, we can prove theorems about them, that um, strong theorems that, that say what they capture about, uh, what properties they capture about the, the two underlying states. So, I mean, maybe we can go into metrics now. Um, this is kind of a natural segue and we can... Um, so what I'm going to do is, this was, a, by the way, a small parenthesis, uh, compiling this these papers was a great exercise. I'd never done something like this, um, like at the end of the year. Uh-huh. Sort of, uh, so uh, this was great. I, I enjoyed it. So I'm going to probably put a post on my on my website with all these papers. So even if we don't go through all of them, then maybe you can put a link to it or something so people can can go check out the other papers that we weren't able to go over. So to come back to the metrics idea, the, the reason I like um, these metrics is 
exactly for this, this reason, that you can build them up from a strong theoretical foundation. You can prove things about what it means for two states to have a distance of zero or, or a distance near zero. And then you can incorporate these perhaps in a contrastive loss to try to get better generalization or better representations or, or what, whatever it is you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the metrics that I've been working on since my master's uh, back in 2005 are these things called by simulation metrics. And so these metrics, they come from concurrency theory and formal verification. So in, in, in the, that type of literature, Often what you'd want to do is, is you, in formal verification, you have a real system that has some type of specification for it, um, some logical specification for it. And so you want to be able to guarantee, for instance, that this system will never crash your rocket ship or, or something yeah. like that. And the way you do this is via something like linear temporal logic or something like that. And so if you can state a, a formula in linear temporal logic that says this system will never crash your rocket, and you can prove that that it satisfies that that uh, statement, then that's great. Then you can sell it um, with with confidence. So simulation basically is is a theory that started looking at when you have a logical specification, is it a proper simulation of the of the real system? And the way it, it was developed is via a series of tests, right? So you can do tests and and sort of run them in tandem, the real world and the the, the real system and and your logical specification. And uh, if you find a discrepancy, then obviously your logical specification is not a faithful simulation. Um, so it was very one-sided in the sense that one something one uh, system A simulated system B, and then they started looking at at by simulation, which is basically two systems that kind of simulate each other, um, in the sense that if uh, you're placed somewhere in system A and you have an adversary in system B, the adversary is going to try to make you realize uh, what system you're in. But if these systems are truly bisimilar, there's no set of actions that the adversary can take that, that will distinguish between them. So they're really indistinguishable. And so that's kind of the, 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 base, the original idea for, for bisimulation. Um, and, and they developed metrics for them and, and all of these types of things. But, but it was really not, at that time, not meant for uh, Markov decision processes. And so in 2004, uh, my PhD supervisor, uh, Prakash, and, and Doina Prekup, they were both my PhD supervisors with Norm Ferns, developed by simulation metrics, which kind of took that idea and brought it into Markov decision processes. And so in a nutshell, what it's essentially capturing is it's saying two states are bisimilar if they agree on immediate reward under all actions, and they also transition uh, with equal probability under any action to bisimulation equivalence classes. So it has a kind of circular definition to it in the sense that I talked about bisimulation equivalence classes in the definition of bisimulation. But this is all well-defined and, and there's a whole theory behind it. But essentially what it's saying is, let's say somebody, an oracle gives you bisimulation and now you just group together all states that are bisimilar. This system is indistinguishable from the original MDP. And so what this means is that you can do things like state aggregation, right? So if you have a lot of states that group together, then you really don't have to think of all of them separately. You can just think of them as one aggregate uh, state. And so when you extend this to metrics, where now you're no, it's no longer binary, like are you bisimilar or not? But um, how close are you? If you have a distance of zero, then you're exactly bisimilar. The closer you are to zero, the closer you are to being bisimilar. What's nice about this distance is that it upper bounds the difference in optimal values between these two states, right? So if you have a state S and T, 
and they have uh, a by simulation distance of epsilon, then that means that their optimal values uh, will differ by no more than epsilon. And so when we come back to representation, this is great, right? Because this is exactly what we were trying to say, right? We want um, states to get grouped together when when they share a particular property. So if you think of approximation error and you're, whenever you move state S, state T also moves, because of this theory, you kind of are guaranteed that it won't really change by more than epsilon. So that's a very high level. There's there's a lot of theory that goes into this. Um, but, uh, but maybe I can start going into some of the papers in this space that I'm particularly excited about. Are all of the papers relying on the same idea of similarity? Or are they are, are there different expressions of similar ideas? Yeah, so um, all of my papers are based on by simulation metrics, not surprisingly. <laughs> but uh, but there's other there's other notions of distance. So let, let me go through a couple. So the first one I have here is this paper that was at iClear. Uh, dynamical distance learning for semi-supervised and unsupervised skill deco- discovery by Christian Hartikainen, Kinyang Zheng, Thomas Harnosha, and Sergey Levin. I probably mispronounced all of those names. But here what they're looking at is distances to particular states. So this is very goal-oriented RL in the sense of, um, like, if you're in a state S, how far is state S prime from you? Not in terms of Euclidean distance, but in terms of transition dynamics. Mm-hmm. And so there's quite a lot of work with these types of ideas. I mean, some of the options work also sort of relates to this, where, where you're really thinking, trying to summarize, if I'm in this state, how long does it take me to get to this other state or to this other state? And perhaps you can incorporate that into planning. Or if you have two states that are sort of equidistant from, a, from the same goal state, then maybe they're similar in some way. This is just to highlight that not all papers are looking at by simulation metrics, but uh but some of these notions, I think it becomes somewhat more difficult in the general setting to, to say something about, about value functions. So in this case, they're restricting themselves to sort of goal-oriented uh, MDPs. So there, if you have c- certain restrictions, like you know sparse rewards and you only get a reward at the goal or something like that, then you might the metric you get might be able to tell you something about what you're doing. One paper that's a, quite a bit more theoretical, but... Maybe I'll come back to that later because it's not as as close to uh, to metrics, uh, in, which is what we're talking about right now. So another similar idea, and I don't know if this is really a metric, but it's it's this idea of, of sort of aligning states that are are similar in some way. Um, mm-hmm. Is uh, this paper called State Alignment Based Imitation Learning, and this was in iClear as well um, by Function Liu, Sanling, uh, Tong Su Mo, and Hao Su. And here, this is uh, the the framework is, is imitation learning. So you have an expert and you have expert trajectories. And so what they're trying to do is, is learn some latent space. So they're using a VAE again for this. Some latent space where the states that are produced by the agent as it interacts with the environment align well with the embedded states of the expert. And so it's a, both a combination of, of just kind of L2 distances between these latent representations but also um, they're looking at the Wasserstein distance or Kantorovich distance between the distribution of, of the states uh, that your trajectory observes. So um, your expert trajectory will have one fixed distribution of these states, but the, the trajectories of states that you collect when your agent is, is interacting with the environment might vary um, and it will sort of get updated as, as the learning process proceeds. Um, and so this Wasserstein distance that I said it's Kantorovich distance. If you speak to my supervisor, Prakash, my ex-supervisor, Prakash Parangaran, he gets very angry if you say Vasterstein because the original name was Kantorovich or <laughs> Monge Kantorovich. 
but nowadays most people know it as I've only heard it at Wasserstein. Yeah, that's sort of what uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think the the Wasserstein Gan paper maybe helped uh, make it really that name popularized. But uh-huh. when I was doing my PhD, I'd never heard of Wasserstein. I mean, it was all Kemperovich. Um, they're, they're the same thing. There's apparently a whole book that discusses the history of this metric. But what's nice about this metric, whatever you want to call it, often it's also called Earth Movers Distance. And the reason it's really nice is because it gives you this continuous measure of, or distance between two probability distributions. So the high level intuition is, is let's say you have a hole um, with a particular volume and you have a mound of dirt of exactly the same volume. And there's a cost for each grain of sand and where you put it in that hole's volume. So what you want to do is transfer all the dirt from the mound into the, the hole with as minimum cost as possible. And so that's kind of the 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 way you can think of the Kantorovich or Wasserstein or Earth Movers distance in a high level sense. So a lot of these metrics are based on this. In fact, the by simulation metric that I was talking about before um, is using the, the Kantorovich metric in its computation. Uh, just um, a quick question on that yeah. one. The premise there is around this idea of state alignment or minimizing the, the state distance. You know, to what extent does that impose a, a degree of impracticality for this kind of approach, meaning having access to both of the states? Is that an issue at all? Well, as I said, this this paper is mostly meant for the imitation learning setting, where you do have a trajectory of experts, uh, of some expert. So if you don't have that, then yeah, I don't know if, if this method is, is applicable. Another thing that that I'm, I have been interested, I mean, I'm still interested, but not actively working in this area, is when you have suboptimal experts. So a lot of this imitation learning um, work often assumes you have an expert instructor or a near near optimal expert, but this is not always the case, right? So if you, I don't know, if you think of how kids sort of learn to play video games, they watch each other playing and they're not experts, but they kind of learn from, from each other and they sort of mm-hmm. um, bootstrap from each other in a sense. I have this paper I put on archive. I don't remember if it was this year or last year. Anyway, it was a rejected nerve submission from 2012 on exactly this idea. So if you have a set of experts that you're trying to learn from, but they're not necessarily optimal, if you have a rank between them, then you can learn something from that. And the idea is to use sort of max margin methods, which other people have used for imitation learning, but this is a multi-max margin method. So you're trying to maximize the margin between each successive class of experts. Okay. Um, so yeah, this paper, back to your original question, this paper I think is mostly applicable uh, in this imitation learning setting. Okay. So one paper that, that is not on this list, but I, I, I'll add it later, is a paper that was presented at the um, Deep RL workshop, as well as the Biological Inspired RL. I can't remember the exact title. It had biology and RL in the title. <laughs> um, the workshop or that's the It was a workshop. Yeah, yeah, that was a workshop. I did not know that that workshop existed and that there were that many papers that were looking into biological RL. But let me just confirm that because maybe I'm, I'm totally <laughs> misremembering the title. So the, the first author is the one that, yeah, biological and artificial reinforcement learning. Huh. Um, and so we presented it here as well as, an, so we had an oral here in the biological and uh, yeah, so our paper, um, this is with Rishabh Agarwal, Marlos Machado, and Mark Belmar. Our paper's titled Contrastive Behavioral Similarity Embeddings for Generalization and Reinforcement Learning. And so this is using uh, this idea of metrics. It's not by simulation metrics, but it's a, it's a metric that uh, Rishabh actually came up with that's kind of inspired by, by simulation metrics. 
So in, in, in by simulation metrics, the way I like to think about them is almost like induction, right? So in induction, you have a base case and then you have the inductive step, right? And then so you, you start from the base case and then it, it kind of grows and that's how you get this power. Like when you do proofs by induction or when you write a recursive function or something like that, this is how you get that simplicity from, um, you know, it's, it's well-founded if it has a base case. So in by simulation metrics, I view it in a similar kind of way where the base case is the difference in rewards. And then the inductive step is is sort of this unfolding and looking at the next at the probability uh, the transition probabilities into the next states and how that fits in within your current metric and that's where the I won't go into the details but that's where the Kantorovich uh, comes in that it's sort of spreading your current metric estimate to the next state distributions. Uh, so in this paper, the contrastive behavioral similarity embeddings, we are replacing that inductive step. So rather than looking uh, for two states, rather than looking at um, their difference in rewards under under all actions, we're looking at their difference in optimal policies. So let's say we have a collection of, of MDPs drawn from some distribution, and you can look at for you know two equivalent states, but from different MDPs drawn from this distribution, you can look at their optimal policies. And if their optimal policies are the same under a collection of these, then you can kind of start to think of them as, as being sort of equivalent in the sense that um, you act the same way when you're acting optimally. And so we use this for generalization in the sense that if we're able to use a small set of MDPs drawn from this distribution for which we have optimal policies and use that to learn these, these representations, then when we go out of distribution, so when we sample other um, tasks from this distribution, these representations actually are quite meaningful and help us learn faster. And so this uh, this metric that we use, is, we call it policy similarity metric. In shape, it's very similar to the bisimulation metric. But again, what we're replacing is this difference in rewards, um, where we're looking at difference in optimal policies. And so then we use this metric to construct, uh, use basically a new contrastive loss. And so these are we call policy similarity embeddings. And so it's a contrastive loss that in the sort of the underlying measure of similarity is this policy simar- similarity metric that, that we introduced. How do you go about constructing a difference in policies? Uh, so we use just total variation distance. This is in the tabular case when, when you can uh, construct this exactly. In the deep setting, because we have some experiments with, with DeepRL, I think we're, we're using sampling in that case. We're, yeah, we're just basically looking at, uh, we're drawing from a replay buffer and we look at the, the optimal action selections and sort of push them together when they're choosing the same actions and, and apart when they're not. And so we evaluated this both in a tabular setting, because then you can really compute this metric in closed form. In some simple, dom- uh, we're using this jumpy world domain, where I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a generalization task where you have it's a, a ground and you have a, an object that an agent can jump over. Mm-hmm. And so the agent has two actions, go right or jump. Okay. And basically you have to jump at the right point or else you'll fall too soon and you'll hit the wall. Or if you jump too late, you won't be able to jump over the obstacle. Okay. And so you can move the floor around and move the, the object around. And that's where the generalization comes in. Are you able to generalize beyond the particular configuration that you've had? And so something like using data augmentation with pixels, which is what you, you often do for these types of problems, doesn't work very well especially when you start doing some adversarial things, like, for instance, color is meaningful for what you have to do. So uh, Rishab added some some interesting tasks there where um, the color of the obstacle indicates whether you want to crash into the obstacle or jump over it. And so these methods that use data augmentation, where 
where you kind of perturb the image don't work very well because then you end up losing the critical information uh, of, the, of the color. Um, so we have some experiments there, but also some experiments in um, in DeepRL. So we're using the distracting control suite. So it's the DM control, the DeepMind control suite, where you have things like Acrobat and and pendulums, uh, swing up pendulum, and things like this. But in the background, so that these are trained from pixels. In the background, you have videos that are completely unrelated. So you'll have vis- videos of a bear moving around and things like that. And so this is really challenging if your method isn't able to handle this type of noise that's unrelated to the task. And so the method that we're proposing is actually quite effective at sort of discerning what's important. And again, it's uh, leveraging this this idea of similarity through action selection. Mm -hmm. So that is one paper that's using by simulation metrics, but in a kind of a different way. So I'll mention here, it's not uh, in this, while we're on the topic of by simulation, it's not in this list yet, but but I'll add it. So I published this paper this year at AAAI that is essentially showing that you can approximate by simulation metrics with deep neural networks. So before this paper, by simulation metrics were essentially used as a theoretical tool more than anything, but it hadn't really entered into the deep uh, network arena because the the computation is extremely difficult. And this Kantorovich or uh, or Wasserstein is a very expensive object to compute. And when you're computing by simulation metrics, you do it in this kind of iterative fashion where you keep updating your estimate, very similar to what you do in value iteration, but in value iteration where you do the expectation of the value for the next state at each step for the by simulation metric, here you're doing the Kantorovich between the next state distribution. So it becomes really, really expensive. Um, The complexity is, is quite large. So what I did in that paper is I said, well, what if we assume for simplicity that we have deterministic transitions? Well, then it turns out that you no longer need to compute the Kantorovich because there's no next state distribution. And so now the update becomes very similar to some, what you see with value iteration. And well, we know how to handle things like value iteration with deep networks. That's basically what DQN was. Mm-hmm. And so I derived an update rule for by simulation metrics and deterministic systems and a mechanism for training it. So essentially you could draw, use a replay buffer and just draw pairs of states from that. Or in fact, what I ended up doing is if you draw a batch of states, right, from your replay buffer, which is what we typically do, you can squareify that. So in the sense that you basically make it a square matrix, and then each element, element ij, becomes your your estimate for the distance between state i and state j from the batch of sampled states. And so what's nice about this is that I was able to to use it to train um, an estimate of the bisimulation metric for a trained agent. So another thing that I that I introduced uh, in that paper that, I mean, the idea I think had, a, had already been around, but I guess I formalized it for a particular setting is uh, what I call pi by simulation metrics. So pi typically pi. by sim, pi by simulation metrics. So pi is in policy. Yep. Um, okay. So the, typically by simulation metrics are policy agnostic. So when you compute them, they tell you the upper bound, the differences in optimal values, as I mentioned. Unfortunately, they don't tell you anything about any other policy, which can be problematic when you're in the learning setting because um, your policy is constantly changing. So if you group together states too quickly, it's not always clear that this will actually do the right thing for you. Um, so PyPy simulation, what it does is it, say, it says, well, let's sort of modify the definition of by simulation metrics, but for a specific policy. And so then when you do that, it solves some of the issues that I was having when trying to 
for instance, use contrastive losses or actually approximate these metrics using deep networks. And the issue is that when it's policy agnostic, you have a maximization term. So what ends up happening with deep networks is that you push all the distances as far apart as possible. So you end up with this giant hypersphere where all the points are equidistant from each other. So it's completely useless at that point. Mm -hmm. But with Pi by simulation metrics, uh, I was able to learn meaningful metrics that I evaluated on Pong and Atari and other games like this, where you see... um, so if you just look at pixel differences, the, the distances that you see with this metric go beyond pixel differences and they're looking more at behavior. So for instance, if you look at what are the, if you consider the start state, what is the furthest state according to this learned distance? Well, it turns out it's the states where it's about to die, where the agent is about to die. And that sort of makes sense from a behavior point of view. But if you look at the pixel differences, they're not all that different. So that work was used by Amy Zhang. Um, it's another paper that is not here because of the archive criteria, uh, but uh, let me look up the name because now that we have it. They put it on archive. So this is Amy Zhang, Roa McAllister, Roberto Calandra, Yaringal, and Sergey Levine. Um, and it's called Learning Invariant Representations for Reinforcement Learning Without Reconstruction. And so they're using a type of bisimulation metric here and using these contrastive losses. The way they they get around the stochasticity, remember in my paper, I I assume determinism, and that's how I was able to get the update. If your transitions are Gaussian, then the Wasserstein 2 metric can be expressed in closed form. So under that assumption, if you assume Gaussian transitions, then you can actually express it in this nice way and you get this, this nice update rule. And so they were able to use that, which worked quite well. I won't go through all the details, but essentially in my paper, I was basically taking a, a learned policy. So pi star or something close to it, and then just learning the metric on top of that. They actually used this loss to improve the representation while the agent is learning. So they they were able to learn faster. And they actually used the loss from my paper um, as a baseline to compare against. It's something I didn't do in my paper. Um, So it was really exciting to see it. The loss actually works for uh, for control. Um, But they obviously obtained better results than that. So this is really what excites me about contrastive losses this idea of using these metrics to sort of derive in a princ- very principled way. Not to say that the other papers aren't principled, but in a, in a way that at least I understand better and that gives me some grounding in terms of what it means for the underlying MDP. I'm using these metrics for, for driving the contrastive losses closer together when they should be. So dealing with stochasticity is something that I'm actually very actively working on right now. And we hopefully will have a paper to, I mean, we have a paper already, but it's not yet ready to be shared. Um, but very nice theory, very nice math, and very nice experimental results as well. So we're hoping to be able to share that uh, with people next year. We've talked a little bit about the understanding and evaluating deep RL. Do you want to go through the highlights there? Sure, yeah. So um, as I said, this is an area that I'm very, very excited about. One paper that I'll just mention briefly, we published at, at the deep RL workshop. Um, with a future student of mine, Johan Samirobando Seron. This paper is called Revisiting Rainbow, Promoting More Insightful and Inclusive Deep Reinforcement Learning Research. Mm. And what we're arguing in that paper is for the value that small and mid-scale environments bring to the research community. So Johan uh, was, I started sort of giving him homework to kind of get him ramped up uh, before he joins us uh, next year for, for a master's. And he started doing some really interesting things, running some interesting experiments, but everything was being run on a Google Colab. Um, so it was single GPU, and he had to really be careful about what experiments he ran. Mm-hmm. But he started getting some really interesting results, and I said, 
it would be impossible for somebody like Johan to write a rainbow paper, right? Because rainbow is, was run on Atari, it was run with all these different algorithms. And so just running Atari takes like five days. And so we started asking ourselves, well, what if we redid the Atari experiment, but with these small and mid-scale environments? And we did that and we end up coming to the same conclusions as Rainbow, that basically all the algorithmic components um, are best when mixed together. But we also discovered some really interesting um, results that I won't go into too many details here, but that made us realize that these interesting results, I don't think they they realized them in the when they were initially developing the Rainbow paper because these types of experiments are so expensive to run on Atari that you have to be more selective as to what you run. But if you're running on something like Cartpool or Acrobat that take like, I don't know, 10 minutes to run, you can really start asking a lot of questions. And of course, not everything carries through directly to Atari, especially because Cartpool and Acrobat typically don't use ConvNets. But then there's these other ex- environments like Minotaur, which are, it's a miniaturized version of a, some Atari games. And so these do have ConvNets. And so you can start sort of ramping up. Um, so w- for instance, one thing we we discovered is that distributional reinforcement learning when you add it on its own to DQN, doesn't work very well if you don't have confidence, which is really surprising to me um, and something we're still digging into. So the what we're arguing is that um, researchers should not basically discredit or, or be dismissive of, of small to mid-scale environments that they actually provide great scientific value because you can do really large sweeps and ask a bunch of questions. Like for instance, who, another thing we discovered is Huber loss, which is what DQN uses. And that's what everybody uses now again nowadays because if, if you build on DQN, because that's sort of what was used in the original paper, if you've switched to Atom, which a lot of people have lately, it turns out that it's better to use mean squared error loss. And so this is just something that people don't question that much, and it, which is fine. I mean, you still get reasonable performance with Hoover, but you get much better with mean squared error. And so these are the types of questions and answers you can get with these smaller systems and then maybe start when you get something insightful like this seen in the larger environments. Was that discovered because you were looking for for that result or those kinds of results or because you were able to just try a lot more and found things that worked more easily because of that? So the Huber loss versus MSC, that was actually found by Johan. And it was when he was, he wasn't looking for it. He was just asking questions. And when he was implementing things, I mean, he was sort of ramping up in reinforcement learning at the, at the time. And in our meeting, one of our meetings, he came to me and he said, hey, I, I, I wasn't sure I, I hadn't implemented Huber loss and it was just easier to implement mean squared error. So mm-hmm. I ran it. And, but then after I implemented Huber loss, it seems mean squared error works better. Why? Hmm. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I actually don't know why. And so that's sort of where the idea started coming from. It's like, well, that's quite interesting. And we ran it in a bunch of other environments and we saw that it held throughout all of them. And I was like, OK, this is quite cool. I ran it on some Atari experiments and it holds there as well. But it, it holds with Atom, not with RMS Prop, which was the original optimizer that DQN used in their paper. So if you look at RMS Prop and Huber versus MSE, Huber ends up winning. So now you understand why the DQN results are, are linked. The Atom and the MSE are, are linked results. Exactly. And so these are the types of questions that we typically don't ask ourselves when we're running these large scale environments. Like, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to switch to Atom because people, that's what people seem to be doing nowadays. As we see, it has some effect on how it interacts with other components. Another thing we found that was super surprising is, so Rainbow uses C51, which was the original algorithm of distributional RL. But you can, that's just one way of parametrizing your distribution. Quantile regression is another way. And so we experimented with that. 
And so it turns out that Quantile doesn't work well with dueling networks, mm -hmm. um, which was really surprising because in the paper itself, they say it should work with dueling networks. Mm -hmm. And so it's something we're still, we're still digging into. But again, I think there's a lot of interactions that we sort of take for granted that you can't always necessarily just swap one thing for another or add something new and have it kind of add, add value in isolation. Like there may be some interaction with some other component that we just don't understand yet. Mm -hmm. And so this is the, the, the line of work that I'm particularly excited about in, in getting these understandings mm -hmm. um, and improving our, our knowledge on this, on this space. In addition to the kind of inclusion element of the benchmarks being just so expensive to run, it, it's it's also, you're starting to ask this question around, you know, are we just over-indexing on the benchmark, you know, that we've been asking about ImageNet and, and all the stuff yeah. that's happening in computer vision before RL now? Yes, exactly. Um, so... Again, one of the, the seeds for this work was the realization that despite Johan was doing an excellent job coding all of these things and, and sort of asking the right questions, there was no way he could have done Rainbow with a single GPU. Um, yes. Like now, uh, because we're using Jax, we were able to get him some uh, some TPUs and cloud. So he's been using that, but they're not that many still. Like Definitely not enough to, to run a, a full Rainbow paper uh, worth of work in, in a reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. So that's unfortunate, right? Because if, if, you're, if you're from a place that's underserved in terms of resources, either you have to do hard theory or you kind of have to pick a different area. But mm -hmm. if uh, DeepRL is really what you're interested in or what you've sort of, what you did your PhD in and you're trying to build a lab on that, it's going to be really hard if everybody is always demanding larger experiments and sort of discounting the small to mid-scale experiments. So what we're arguing here in this paper is don't, as a reviewer, don't dismiss it. Don't be dismissive. You can do good science with these small environments. And if that's the case, then great. And it also means that people without access to large compute can also participate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if there are analogs or the extent to which there are analogs or known analogs in the language model space. Like, I think the same realization has been happening in the language model world where, mm -hmm. you know, we're training these 3 billion parameter models. And, you know, if you're not, uh, affiliated with a very well-heeled lab or company, it's very hard to compete in that kind of research. And so you see folks kind of trending more towards or shifting to like theoretical, like you said, or more applied you know, applications mm -hmm. of language models. This kind of uh, an analog to this result in that world would be, well, you know, you can still learn some of the same fundamental things from these from smaller language models. I don't know if that exists or not. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I probably don't know the language model uh, space as well as I should to, to really be able to comment uh, in depth. But I think probably one of the things that makes it a little different and a little more challenging in the language model space is that there's an underlying structure that you can't get away from, which is language, right? So you can imagine coming up with a made-up language um, that's very small. And so there are certain types of questions you can ask and, and get answered in, in the, those types of scenarios. But ultimately, I mean, what most of the researchers in that space are interested in is in representing real language, yeah. uh, in English for, for translation or whatever. And so when you shift to these, these small models, well, then you have the difficulty of how representative is it of, of real language and of grammars and, and things like that. So it's an interesting question, but I think uh, perhaps one advantage we have in RL is that it doesn't really have that kind of underlying 
structure for the types of problems we run. I mean, so like a, a, a four-state grid world is totally fair game if um, that sort of helps highlight whatever contribution you're making, yeah. which I think would be more difficult in, in the NLP space. Hmm. Okay, so let's go to some other papers. Uh, so one that I liked was by some colleagues. It's called Measuring the Reliability of Reinforcement Learning Algorithms by Stephanie Chan, Samuel Fishman, Anup Koratikara, John Kani, and Sergio Guadarrama. Guadarrama sorry. And, and here they're, they're looking at DeepRL and they're looking at, at a few different metrics that they introduce to evaluate the performance of these algorithms beyond just, is my curve higher than yours and did it reach that high point faster than yours? Mm-hmm. So that's a fine metric, but I think there's more we can ask of these algorithms. So what does it mean if you reach a score higher? Like the shape is, is fine, but how risk averse are you? How sensitive to risk are you? How stable are you across runs? Um, this is something that has been already discussed quite a bit in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, the stability of algorithms across different runs, especially when you're running with really large environments, that's another issue, uh, another advantage of running smaller scale environments. You can run a ton of independent runs and get much tighter confidence, much tighter, more meaningful confidence intervals than you can with something like Atari. Um, so that's a that's a really nice paper that, that I like quite a lot. And so they have some pretty broad analyses of, of existing algorithms and how they perform relative to each other across these different rubrics. So they look at value-based methods, which are the ones I t- mostly look at, as well as policy gradient methods. So very nice paper. Another paper by other colleagues, some, a lot of them in actually in Montreal with us, is the Revisiting Fundamentals of Experience Replay. Um, this was presented at ICML. So this was by Liam Fetus, Prajit Ramachandran, Rishabh Agarwal, Yoshua Benjo, Hugo La Rochelle, Mark Rowland, and Will Dabney. And here, this is very much in the spirit of what, I, what I'm excited about and, and looking at the things that we kind of take for granted when we do deep RL research, like the replay buffer. What does it mean to change the size of the replay buffer? Like, how is your training affected when you change how old the latest policy in your replay buffer is? And so they introduce these terms like the replay ratio, which uh, relates to how often you, you update your replay buffer, how big your replay buffer is, and how this ratio affects the learning process. So I really like this type of work because it's, uh, I think there's less of an emphasis now, but I feel like uh, 2019, there was an 18, perhaps there's still a bit of this, but a lot of desire to get state of the art. So you want SOTA and reviewers want SOTA. And so if you have a paper that isn't SOTA, then why are you publishing it? And I think that's uh, not a a great take on these types of papers. Mm -hmm. I'm glad the paper was accepted because I, I really think we need to take a more critical eye into the different components of these systems we're using. They're very complex. They, they include a whole bunch of different things. And it's easy to sort of take it for granted and say, I'm just going to focus on this one part, which is what I'm working on. But as I said before, like there may be some strange interactions with other uh, aspects of the overall DeepRL algorithm that you're using that are important to understand. Mm-hmm. Were they running their own experiments or was this a review of published results and um, looking at, uh, I guess the, the question that I'm asking myself is, you know, are these like replay buffer hyperparameters, are they even regularly published with results or, you know, is that, you know, part of these, like what we talked about with VAEs, like things that people tune and don't really talk about? Mm-hmm. I think, especially more and more nowadays, people do publish their hyperparameters. So with these checklists where you have to specify whether you're including code and what your hyperparameters are, at least I do check. 
Um, and I think a lot of other reviewers do check as well, which is a great thing because there's nothing more frustrating than if you're a student and you're trying to reproduce a paper and you've implemented it as far as you can tell word for word and it doesn't work. And then it turns out that the authors forgot to include a very critical hyperparameter. That's extremely frustrating. So for this paper, they 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 reran their experiment. So they they um, they implemented all their code, and so they're using some setups that I don't think have been published before. And okay. so that's uh, the type of question they're asking: like, if you were to do this, what does that mean? And so I think it's a great paper because if you're starting to play with the replay buffer and and perhaps use use a uh, its design and size and all of that, trying to use it to your advantage, I think this paper is, is really useful in terms of understanding what are likely the dimensions along which you'll get better bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. Let's maybe, uh, if you've got another paper you want to cover in this understanding thing briefly. Uh, yeah, just one more. I wanted to mention the behavior suite for reinforcement learning or B-suite. Yep. Um, this I won't go through the authors. A bunch of uh, DeepMind authors. Ian Osmond is the, the first author. This Paper is not uh, specific to DeepRL, but it's really trying to look at what they call core capabilities of reinforcement learning. So they're looking at exploration, credit assignment, generalization, memory, noise, scale, things like that. And so they have a, a bunch of small en- environments on, along which you can evaluate your algorithm, mm-hmm. um, as well as some larger ones. And I, I just really like this type of work because it's, it's again, taking a critical eye to these algorithms and going beyond just reported training performance, which is what, when you're searching for soda, that's often what you, what you end up looking for. And this is really looking along all of these different rubrics. How do you perform? And it's unlikely any algorithm will perform best along all those rubrics, but at least you get a better idea for if you're really focused on exploration, did that mean that you really had to sacrifice robustness to noise or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not necessarily that means that your paper should be rejected, but it lends a better understanding to people that may want to use your algorithm uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. You've got in your notes an uh, example of one of the radar charts that they publish mm-hmm. in the paper, and it's a great way to represent the the relative results here. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, that's another thing I really liked about this paper, the way they've visualized it, because there's there's all these dimensions. Yeah, um, so it's difficult to come up. With. I really enjoyed this, this radar plot. It, it's really nice. Yeah. Cool. And so uh, I want to make sure that we cover some of the real world observations that you've made, because that's something that I've been tracking for the past few years. And I think without fail, you know, we're starting to see more and more interesting examples of RL, you know, peeking into the the real world. So I'm curious to see what you've come up with in, in your review. Yeah. So the here it's a, it's a little more self-centered. <laughs> the two papers that, I, that I'm considering are uh, an author on both. But again, I think this is more a consequence of my lack of visibility of, of work in this area. Most of the, the work where I'm doing like literature review and, and sort of scouring papers is, is along the two groupings that we mentioned uh, that we've already been discussing. So I, I know there is there is some work in recommender systems. There's a team in Google actually that's doing a lot of work in reinforcement learning for that. And they come up with open source code and uh, benchmarks for that. I think they're even using dopamine for uh, for part of it. I know the Royal Bank of Canada actually has a whole team that does reinforcement learning. Matthew Taylor is the well now it's I think part of Borealis AI. But I, um, when I spoke to him, he told me that they were actually starting to use reinforcement learning in real public-facing settings. I don't know the details, but uh, but that's encouraging to hear. And so the two papers I chose 
for this. The first one is uh, one that we presented at the Machine Learning for Economic Policy Workshop at NERVS. It actually won Best Paper um, at that workshop, and it's it's a long title. Let me look it up. Um, Estimating Policy Functions and Payment Systems Using RL. So this is a collaboration I have with the Bank of Canada. And so the Bank of Canada is kind of like the federal bank. So they're not in it to, to make money. They're really there as a regulatory um, agency. And so banks in Canada need to send payments to each other. So this is um, just kind of natural dynamics of different customers having different bank accounts and that type of thing. And so at the beginning of, of each day, each bank will request a certain amount of liquidity from the Bank of Canada. And this is so that they can meet the initial payments that they'll receive without delaying them. Because if they don't have enough liquidity to make their payments, they have to delay those payments, which incurs a cost. And so they'll receive payments that they have to make during the day, but they'll also get paid by other banks. And so that helps them increase their liquidity. So it's a almost like a bandit problem, you can think of the, this initial liquidity request, because they have to sort of try to anticipate how many payments am I going to receive and at what point and what are the payments I'm going to have to make. And so that selection is, is quite complex. The, you can't obviously request as much liquidity as you want because it'll it, it, there's a cost to it. Yeah. And so then at each time step, if you delay payments, then there's a cost to that. And at the end of the day, you have to make all your payments. So if you don't have liquidity at that point, you have to borrow from the Bank of Canada and there's a higher cost to doing that. So this is kind of the, the problem that these different banks face. And it's a multi-agent system because you're you have multiple banks that are sort of trying to optimize these things for themselves. And then you have the Bank of Canada as sort of the central regulator that's not really playing the game. It's more just kind of loaning money and ensuring everything flows smoothly. And so the, the Bank of Canada is interested in understanding this dynamic better. And so what we're exploring in this paper is, can we use reinforcement learning to ex- do just that? So when you simplify the setting to a very simple two-party uh, system with a single time step, you can solve the optimal solution, the Nash equilibrium of, of this in closed form. So that's what the, the economists did. They, they solved what's the optimal amount to request from the bank at the initial liquidity. And so then that was our initial step. Let's see if we can train RL to sort of find this, this analytical solution. And we were able to do it. So that was kind of an initial proof of concept of, okay, we can, it actually can do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing in this paper is first we're separating the initial liquidity problem, which is kind of like a bandit problem but in a more complex setting. So not just a simplified uh, scenario that, that I mentioned. So in, in the, the more complex setting, we don't have the, the closed form solution. Um, so we're more looking at how the, the cost evolves over time and, and the loss that we're learning, that type of thing. And then also the, the second aspect that we sort of separated from the initial liquidity is how much payment to send at each time step, right? So if you send all your payment then you might run out of money too soon. If you don't send enough, then you're going to incur uh, delay costs. And um, again, this was able to learn quite effectively. We don't have a closed form solution to that. So it's more based on sort of the analyses that the bank typically does for this type of thing. And again, this is a multi-agent system. So it's not a single RL agent learning everything. We have two RL agents that are sort of co-learning. And so this is quite interesting because the dynamics of multi-agent systems are very difficult to, to understand and anticipate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so this is quite promising because it, it shows that we can start thinking of these machine learning tools as mechanisms for getting a better understanding of these complex dynamical systems that we're already affected by today. Mm-hmm. 
In this setting, is there any kind of constraint on the total capital in the system or that the central bank has access to? No, you typically assume the central bank has as much money as you need. (laughs) I would think that, you know, from a real world perspective, which I guess is what we're talking about, yes. The question came from, you know, thinking about this as an example of like a game theoretical application of RL, where you Mm -hmm. tend to have these interactions between the behavior of one agent and the behavior and outcomes of other agents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so there is definitely a a big uh, game theory component to to this work. Some of like Rodney Garrett and Francisco, uh, they, they do a lot of that type of research. So I think there's beyond just banks. I think that this type of work, it will find, it, it will find that what, what the findings will carry over to kind of more theoretical or more academic research in, in multi-agent RL, mm-hmm. um, the types of dynamics we find. And so to continue along those lines, I didn't put this paper yet here, but another paper, uh, so three papers that I'm on. <laughs> um, <laughs> The other one, this was actually presented at the, was an oral at the creativity workshop at NURBS. Um, and here we're using multi-agent RL to train these these little agents in a dynamic film is what they're calling it. Um, so it's a, it's a film, it's a VR, it's meant to be VR, but you can view it on your phone as well. Um, it's called Agents. So if you go to agents.ai, you can download it and it's really fun to play. But the idea, the premise is, is you have this planet. Mm-hmm. That has its own gravity, but it's also kind of in this void that has its own gravity. So, so if you fall off the planet, you're going to fall into the void. And so you have these five agents that are sort of walking around. Yeah. And where they, if they move over to the side of the planet, the planet starts tilting. And so they might fall out. So they have to kind of learn to balance each other. And between the five of them to sort of balance the planet so that it doesn't tilt over and they don't die. And then as a user, the reason it's called a dynamic or interactive film as the user, you can come and you can plant uh, this little tree thing in the planet. Mm-hmm. And the agents are drawn to this to this tree and they want to sort of consume the fruit. And as the tree grows, it also has its own mass. So it's going to tilt the planet in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And so we use multi-agent RL basically to train these different agents to have their own behaviors. Yeah. Um, but this is all affected by where you place the tree, how many trees you place, et cetera. And you can also, they have some scripted agents that don't use reinforcement learning. And so you can choose which ones have RL and which ones don't. And so that creates a whole different huh. dynamic. And so here, the, the purpose is really just creative. Um, it, we want something that's compelling and, and has a nice narrative to it. And it works really, really well. Agents.ai? Agents.ai, yeah. A-G-E-N-C-E. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a play on, on RL agents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's really cool. Um, and I, even though it's not like banks or, or flying balloons or anything, it, I, I still find it real world because it's something that people are interacting with when they play with this game. Um, and it's affecting their emotional state or whatever um, because it's RL that's actually affecting the, the game dynamics and the narrative um, that ends up coming out of this experience. Yeah. So I, I found that really cool. And again, it's another exploration that I'm making into this multi-agent RL space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And speaking of flying balloons. Yes. <laughs> so then the, the big the big paper for us this year was a nature paper that we published, uh, was announced uh, two weeks ago. Not too long ago. No, no, no. So we knew it was already accepted um, like over a month ago, but we couldn't say anything until it was fully out. Yep. So it's called Autonomous Navigation of Stratospheric Balloons Using Reinforcement Learning. So here, this was a partnership with Loon. So Loon is an alphabet company. It used to be part of Google X. And you may know, recognize them. What they do is they, they make these 
giant balloons that fly in the stratosphere and bring internet basically to areas with no connectivity. And so they have these balloons flying over Kenya and Peru and, and really bringing internet to remote areas where they use it for their livelihood. And so it's a really uh, a problem that's really important and, and could really bring a lot of good to the world. I think after the, the, I don't know if the most recent, but one of the most recent hurricanes in Puerto Rico, they were able to use these loon balloons to help give people connectivity because everything was had been sort of destroyed. Hmm. Yeah, so so there's many very, very challenging problems in, in the space from like building the balloons to testing the, the robustness of the balloons to launching them and then obviously controlling them. And uh, so Sal Candido, the CTO of Loon, gave a great expo talk at NURPS. Um, recording is probably still available, but it, it, it does a really good job of sort of giving an overview of all the different complexities there are in flying these things. Um, so the way you control these balloons is by basically surfing winds. Um, so in the stratosphere, you have different layers of winds at different altitudes. So the stratosphere, is, I think it starts at like 12,000 feet or something above. No, I'm totally getting it wrong. We know it in in, uh, in pressures, in, in units of pressure. I think it's uh, fourteen thousand units of pressure, the, the barometric pressure. And so the way the way it works is that these winds kind of flow in one direction at one altitude, and then flow in a different direction at a different altitude, yeah. and this changes over time. So Mark Belmar also gave, a, who's the first author of this, gave a, a talk at the Deep RL workshop. He was one of the keynotes, um, and he gave went really into the details of the RL. Um, so it's another great talk uh, if you can check it out. But there, one of the images he has is, is uh, the wind patterns in the tropics over from 1960, I think, until now. And you can see there's some regular patterns every 10 years, but they're constantly changing. Okay. And so the way you fly these balloons is by going up, down, or staying. So if you stay, the balloon is going to drift with the wind. But if your wind is drifting this way and you want to go the other way, then if you have an idea that the winds are going in that direction in a higher altitude, then you're going to want to bring the balloon up and then it'll come back. So it's kind of challenging because you have to both figure out how to navigate these winds, um, and you also have to have an idea for where the winds are, are going to be at, at different altitudes. So it's a, there's partial observability here because we have some forecasting mechanisms, but obviously not perfect. And then you have to deal with power. It's a solar-powered balloon, so at night yeah. you, you can run out of power very quickly. So a lot of challenging problems. And the one we were uh, tackling with this paper is what's called station keeping. So uh, if you have a particular uh, point on the earth where you want the balloon to be delivering internet, then you want the balloon to stay there. But because it's sort of floating in winds, you can't just say stop because the balloon will drift it away. So it has to kind of this funky figure eight pattern where it sort of navigates the balloon and the altitudes to try to stay within a 50 kilometer radius, which is what we want to to be able to deliver um, that signal there. And that's a very challenging problem. And they had a a static controller that a bunch of people with with PhDs in, in dynamical systems and understanding winds and aeronautics and things came up with. And so we uh, developed this reinforcement learning agent that was trained using these winds, and it was able to surpass the performance of the station keeping agent in terms of staying within that area. And so obviously this was all trained in simulation, and and we have a big production pipeline to train these things that the Loon team had built up. Mm -hmm. But what was really exciting is when we started trying these things out for real in the world. So deploying these controllers and balloons in the world, and when they actually were doing what they were meant to be doing, that was just incredible because it's like, wow, they're actually actually doing it. (laughs) You know, you hear about the sim to real problem, um, which is very important problem. It's a very challenging problem. And we were able to sort of navigate that gap pretty well in the sense that the the agents that we train in simulation were able to handle the real world um, quite well. And so this was extremely exciting and 
Did you particularly design for that meaning domain adaptation techniques or specific techniques to inject, you know, noise in your data or, or things like that? Or did it just transfer well to the real world? No, I mean, there were a lot of, it wasn't like a, we just plugged RL in it and it worked. There was obviously a lot of design decisions we had to make along the way to, to make it work well. So during training, we had mechanisms of doing something akin to out of distribution evaluation. So we could train in a particular setting and then evaluate it with a different, um, it could be something as simple as same location, but just a different year. Mm-hmm. And the winds would be very different. Um, and obviously trying at different locations and things like that. And that's how we sort of started building up confidence in our in our controller. And so also like dealing with the partial observability during training helped us up the agent be more robust to the real partial observability in the in the real world. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things, um, I mean, when when it started being deployed in the real world, it wasn't like the first agent that was deployed is the one that that's flying now. We kept on iterating and, and improving on it. Um, and but it's yeah, it's flying a bunch of balloons now. Just saying, yeah. When you first mentioned this, you know, the obvious thought was it sounds like classical control type of problem. And you mentioned that it outperforms, you know, what is, what does outperform mean in this context? The main metric we're using, yeah, is time within the, within radius. Okay. So if you evaluate this over a day or two days or a week or whatever, you want to make sure that you're getting more time within that radius. But the other metric that we're using it, and so we have in the paper, these Pareto plots that have, uh, what was in the x-axis? So I think, uh, anyway, let's say time within radius and the x-axis. Mm-hmm. Right, so you want this to be further to the right, and then on the y-axis we have uh, power consumption. So we want to be with radius without blowing out the power, because at night, if you blow out your power, then you can't do anything. You're you're yeah. stuck at drifting, and so you can get this sort of Pareto frontier. And and we did this in simulation by doing like really expensive rollouts that you can't realistically do in, in the real world to get a, a pretty good uh, estimate of what this frontier looks like, mm-hmm. and so. With this type of analysis, we were also able to see that. Um, and you can see it's really neat when you see it through training. You can see our controller, the more you train, the more it sort of starts approaching that that frontier. And so it gets a better trade-off of time within ratio uh, within ratio and power consumption than the static controller. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other analyses we've done as well that, that sort of convinces that it's doing a, a better job. Cool, cool. Let us transition to a few lightning round questions to uh, sure. to get us closed out. I think we've covered the the main topics we wanted to cover: generalization, understanding, and evaluating an RL in a real world. Thoughts on the most interesting new, you know, either tools, simulation environments, open source projects. Thirty seconds to list the ones that come to mind. So I would say the one for me that I'm most excited about is JAX. And this isn't specific to RL, but we use it in RL, so Dopamine now has it. And I think it's just a really, really uh, beautiful ecosystem. It has a lot of the advantages of of TensorFlow in terms of speed and that type of thing, but it tries to make it in a a way that seems like you're writing NumPy. So it's very intuitive and and very easy to kind of get into. I've been using it now for my research exclusively, and uh, DeepMind has Relax, and there's a bunch of other libraries that are building on top of that. So I think that, for me, is my favorite one of 2020. Mm-hmm. And what is the thing that it displaces in your toolbox? Uh, TensorFlow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I now I build my agents using JAX. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cool. And any others that come to mind? Um, so... 
I think there's there's more well B suite that I mentioned earlier. So yep. that suite I, I think is is really nice because it uh, again allows you to evaluate your agents across a variety of important rubrics. I think there's been quite a bit of work, although I'm not as as a familiar with the space as to know if it was all in 2020, but there's quite a bit of work in procedural generation of environments, which I think is is kind of interesting and exciting, especially as we talk about generalization and, and that type of thing. I think being able to have the the ability to programmatically generate out of distribution examples is is quite neat. So Matt Budvinik gave another keynote at the DeepRL workshop and he was talking about a similar idea. Um, they're building a system called Alchemy, I think. I don't know if it's open source yet, uh, but that type of work, I think, is, is quite exciting. Okay. Okay. And then, you know, spending a few minutes kind of looking forward into 2021, thoughts on kind of the most exciting opportunities for RL? Where do you think the, the puck is going to go? To use something that a Canadian would understand. <laughs> I always struggle with these prediction things because I always get them wrong. Um, I think there is going to be uh, more and more work in, in really dissecting deep RL in the spirit of what I was mentioning before. Mm-hmm. We're already starting to see some of that, but I think there will be more of that. And I think this will lead to some eyebrow raising surprises in terms of how certain things we take for granted actually behave under different circumstances. Um, and who knows, that might lead also to a new state-of-the-art agent that is able to incorporate these things properly. The thing I mentioned with with Adam and RMS prop, I mean, I don't know about enough about optimizers to really be able to know if this is a sane thing to say, but I don't know, why couldn't we have an RL-specific optimizer that doesn't have this issue with that we can see with RMS prop versus Adam and, and Hooper versus MSE. Like, what if the optimizer were tied to whatever loss you were using? And how can we make this in a way that is natural to sort of define what the best optimizer would be? And again, uh, I think part of the reason why I picked these groupings is because this is what I feel is going to be, for me, most exciting for next year. So seeing more deployments in the real world. Another thing that I didn't mention here, but that I am quite interested in, is getting a better understanding of the relationship between value-based and policy-based methods. So Marlos Machado, Debo Gosh, and uh, and Nicolas Lehu, uh, Debo was the first author, they had an ERPS paper where they're they're looking at the um, policy gradient methods as in from an operator perspective, which is how we traditionally look at value-based methods, which this operator we apply. And I think that's really exciting work. Uh, I'm actually working with them a little bit now. And I'm really looking forward to understanding this dynamic better. So if anything, I hope that we can reach a point where we can say, I have this problem, should I use value-based or policy-based method um, that goes beyond what's my favorite framework? What does what do they provide? <laughs> mm-hmm. And are there things that you saw kind of as just blips on the radar uh, or emerging trends that you see growing in importance, you know, maybe not, you know, in one year, but in three to five? Yeah, I think upending the traditional way of doing RL. There was a really interesting paper that I saw that I had in my list of others that uh, I'll just briefly mention. Um, It's called, uh, this was an ICML paper, I think. Decentralized reinforcement learning, global decision making via local economic transactions. Mm. And so the way they define, they do this work is that rather than having an agent that picks different actions, you can imagine at each point picks one of the available actions. 
you can have imagine having multiple agents each kind of controlling their own action and they bid in an auction and so then the winner of that auction gets to pick the action and so they they have some nice theory there that shows that this actually leads to good behavior but this this uh way of sort of shifting the way that we look at this, uh, the dynamics of action selection, I think is really, really interesting. Um, when I started at Google, I worked in ads. So uh, they're using a Vickery auction, which is what we were using in ads. And uh, so that, for me, it was, as well, it was also just really interesting to see Vickery auction in, a, in an RL paper that I never anticipated I'd see. Gergely now uh, had this paper, I'm forgetting uh, with whom, I think he was the first author, where he's basically arguing that the squared Bellman error is broken. And he proposes this new uh, Bellman error that has better theoretical properties and and just works better. And again, that's sort of questioning the traditional things that we take for granted when we do RL. And it goes similar spirit to what I was mentioning before. But uh, when I was mentioning earlier, it was more tied to uh, deep RL. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's interesting work that's looking at really the foundations of RL before you even get to deep networks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I feel like, well, I know that I could continue on <laughs> talking about this stuff, but I want to be respectful of your time and, and our audience. My kids are going to storm in soon, so it's very good. <laughs> and your, cat, your, your cat's... Uh, yeah, my dog is actually outside. I have to go <laughs> let her in. But Pablo, thanks so much for taking the time to share. Uh, well, first of all, to pull all this stuff together. Great uh, review and to come on and share it with us. Very, very interesting stuff. Thanks, Sam. It was uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. This is great. Same here. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.